episode 43 let's talk about umbilical correction impedes dental blood flow by occluding the umbilical blood vessels fetal tolerance of impeded fetal placental blood flow and subsequent hypoxemia and acidemia correlates with the ratio of umbilical cord compression to contractions intermittent umbilical cord compression evidenced by variable decelerations that is less than 50% of the contractions and is typically well tolerated by the fetus that is no hypoxia and does not require interventions in contrast umbilical cord compressions with more than equal to 50% of the contractions as evidenced by recurrent variable deceleration can result in lack of fetal placental blood flow which the fetal cannot tolerate and can cause hypoxemia and acidosis this patient's fetal heart rate tracing shows a normal baseline and moderate variability average amplitude is 6 to 12 uh, 25 per minute and recurrent uh, variable decelerations are there okay the first line treatment for the management of uh, recurrent variable decelerations is intrauterine resuscitation by changing the maternal position okay left lateral and all four columns which may reduce the cord compressions and also improve the fetal placental blood flow but if variable deceleration does not improve an amnio infusions that is installation of saline into intrauterine cavity can be administered an amnio infusion artificial creates more amniotic fluid which can reduce the umbilical cord compressions and decrease the variability so firstly we have to go for the maternal positioning repositioning and then we can go for amnio infusions okay C-section delivery is indicated in the patients with the absent variability and recurrent or variable decelerations. Category three tracing of the fetal heart rate. Okay, so what does that means? Fetal heart rate tracing pattern. Category one, category two, and category three. So in category one requires all the following criteria. All following criteria should be there in category one. Okay, first baseline heart rate should be hundred ten to one sixty per minute. and a moderate variability 6 to 25 per minute no or no late or variable deceleration no such finding should be there early plus minus decelerations can be there and uh, accelerations can also be there okay category 2 not category 1 and not category 3 that is intermittent pattern but now let's talk about category 3 first more than equal to one of the following character should be there absent variability plus recurrent late decelerations absent variability plus recurrent variable decelerations absent variability plus bradycardia and sinusoidal pattern okay and sinusoidal pattern so if all these things are there then the patient is under coming under the category 3 okay so this patient's fetal heart rate tracing has moderate variability therefore intrauterine resuscitation should be attempted first in this patient's fetal heart rate tracing shows a cap becomes a category 3 then c section delivery would be indicated okay if the the fetal heart rate undergo category 3 okay fetal skull stimulation is performed to evaluate the fetal acidosis in the patients who has no accelerations on the fetal heart rate monitoring if a no acceleration was there then that time we do the fetal heart uh, sorry fetal acidosis by fetal skull stimulation fetal skull stimulation is not performed in the patients with decelerations and is can it because it can exhibit the parasympathetic response and result in prolonged deceleration and fetal bradycardia so we don't do fetal skull stimulation in that conditions we do that in accelerations if patient is not having any accelerations an operative vaginal delivery that is forceps and vacuum is indicated when expanded deliveries in the patients with complete that is more than 10 cm cervical dilatation if there then we go for that okay oxidation augmentations increase the contraction strength and frequency thereby increasing the umbilical cord compressions and impedance of the fetal placental blood flow okay now let's move further and talk about the another thing 
Yeah, so neural tube defects. Types of neural tube defects, it can be anencephaly, encephalocele, spina bifida, meningomyelocele. Risk factors is uh, low folic acid intake, methotrexate and anti-epileptic drug use, diabetes mellitus and prior pregnancy with neural tube defect. Prenatal screening, there is second trimester, ultrasonography must be done and maternal serum alpha-betoprotein is also measured. Prevention, average risk of 0.4 mg folic acid daily is given. Okay. 0.4 mg folic acid daily and if higher risk patient then we give 4 mg folic acid daily so yeah neural tip defects are common congenital anomalies and can vary from surgical correctable minor defects that is spina bifida to a major defect that is anencephaly so the spina bifida is can be surgically connected okay you know that the caudal end is not fused but if rostral end is not fused that is the head end then anencephaly can occur which is in that condition, the patient is incompatible in with life because he has no brain and his face appears like frog. Okay, yeah. So, screening of neural tube defects occurs at 15 to 20 weeks of gestations with the measurement of the maternal serum alpha-fetoproteins. Okay, so how you uh, identify the neural tube defect screening, how you screen that 15 to 20 weeks gestations with the measurements of maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein. MSAFP, okay, metal serum alpha beta proteins, 15 to 20 weeks of gestation. Glycoprotein produced by the fetus, okay. This is glycoprotein which is produced by the fetus and we measure that only. Metal serum alpha beta protein reports in multiple medians, okay, multiples of medians using an unaffected pregnancies at the same gestational as a reference. So, yeah, we know that. An abnormal elevated fetal uh, alpha beta metal serum alpha beta protein that is more than equal to 2.5 as in this patient suggests the neural tube defects because alpha fetoprotein leaks readily through a defect and become concentrated in the amniotic fluid and the maternal circulations however an elevated elevations may occur due to benign conditions such as multiple gestations two fetus each producing the afp so we can see this afp increase in mul uh, multiple gestations also okay and incorrect gestational dating that is most common cause is this only because uh, what happens is uh, we date the child differently and then we see that alpha protein at this condition should be this much but we actually don't know the date and therefore we are estimating it wrong so this there are both potential explanations and this patients with uterine size greater than the dates so yeah this can also be the case and also the late presentations to prenatal care that she's not been using the uh, folic acid since ever so yeah it's been given just three weeks prior and right now she's 20 weeks gestation so yeah we have to think about that therefore abnormal alpha beta proteins require fetal ultrasonography which can detect multiple gestations or it can also determine an uh, gestational age and i also visualize the fetal cns structures okay yeah afp and carcinoma 125 are ovarian tumor markers both are commonly elevated in the pregnancy carcinoma 125 is are not measured in young patients because of low risk of cancers unless they have undergone an ovarian cancers or require the level to progress the follow the disease progression okay folic acid supplementations starting at age more than equal to one month before the conception as the neural tube closes very early in the pregnancy okay often before the patient is aware of being pregnant so we have to start folic acid one month before only okay however increasing intake at 16 weeks of gestation will not benefit because neural tube defect neural tube was already closed and uh, if not closed then the defect is already there okay completed by five to six weeks only in addition increased doses are not recommended because prenatal vitamins are uh, other components as a vitamin a are dangerous if taken in excess so you know you should know that
Now, the quantitative beta HCG measurement in the first trimester to evaluate the abnormal pregnancies such as the ectopic pregnancies or high deformed mole and in second trimester we measure which cannot assess the fetal status okay so we don't have to do that and uh, the repeated uh, alpha fetoprotein if uh, even if normal cannot exclude the neural tube defect due to the tendency of for the value to regress to mean okay leading to the falsely reassuring results so later on it reduces to some amount and we think that neural tube defect is not there so we don't have to do this repeated uh, maternal alpha fetoprotein okay okay now let's talk about listeria monocytogenes pathogenesis is foodborne transmission it is basically transmitted by foodborne transmission okay so there was a history of uh, women going to the picnic and then she had something and after that she had watery diarrhea so all these features are suggesting of listeria monocytogenes okay Bacterial invasions of the intestinal epithelial cells. We see that bacteria invade the intestinal epithelial cells and also transplacental passage to the fetus is there. Clinical features. We see febrile gastroenteritis in an immunocompetent host. Even in immunocompetent host, we can see febrile gastroenteritis and invasive disease, sepsis meningitis in the neonates and also in the pregnant women, elderly and immunocompromised. So if the, if the situation is immunocompromised, that is elderly, pregnant women, neonates, so all these things in that conditions we suggest meningitis and sepsis. Laboratory finding gram positive raw run culture can be seen or also blood culture, CSF culture and stool culture. Treatment includes supportive care for gastroenteritis in normal host. Okay. And parenteral antibiotic for invasive disease. So for normal cases, we don't have to give them um, uh, supportive care. But for uh, this uh, parenteral infections, gastroenteritis, we have to treat the with the parenteral in antibiotics. Okay. So this patients with intrauterine fetal demise in the setting of a recent episode of watery diarrhea likely to have a foodborne infections due to listeria monocytogenes. Listeria monocytogenes is a facultative intracellular anaerobic organisms that typically cause outbreaks by ingestion of the contaminated food that is daily meat. So if someone had this daily meats, then we have to think about listeria monocytogenes. The bacteria can replicate at cold temperature that is cold temperature of refrigerations okay and invade the intestinal mucosa once ingested okay can cause the gastroenteritis fever vomiting and diarrhea most infections in healthy patients are self-limiting however in the pregnant women who are relatively immunosuppressed at increased risk of invasive disease bacteremia and fetal infections also common because transplacental transmission can be there infections acquired in early pregnancy that is first in the second trimester typically results in granulomatosis with septicum. so you have to remember that uh, disseminated abscess and granulomas can be there and also possible intrauterine fetal demise can occur so if we see that listeria is infecting the pregnant women in the first and the second trimester, it can lead to granulomatosis infantiseptum, that is disseminated abscess and granuloma, and also intrauterine fetal demise can occur. Infection, if, if there is in the third trimester, is less severe, okay, and present with fetal distress and preterm delivery. An early onset of the neonatal sepsis can be there. Therefore, the pregnant patients are advised to avoid the food commonly contaminated with listeria monocytogenes such as raw meats and vegetable and unpasteurized dairy products and processed daily meats so all these things should not be given to a pregnant woman in addition proper hand washing and hand soiling or decaying vegetations gardening is recommended okay proper hand washing is recommended after any sort of procedure early infections with borrelia burgdorifera that is lyme's disease typically presents with erythema migrans rather than gastroenteritis yeah and in that we see that uh, particular rash no erythema migrans bullseye rash 
Group B streptococci infections causes intrauterine fetal demise. However, the pregnant women are usually asymptomatic and have urinary tract infections rather than gastroenteritis. Parvo B19 infections causes intrauterine fetal demise. However, the diagnosis is less likely because it spreads via contaminated food. It does not spread via contaminated food. Therefore, it's not the case here. Okay. Maternal infections causes arthralgias and arthritis, particularly of the small joints and rashes. Also, is there that is slap cheek, which is not seen in this patient. Staphylococcus aureus is a rare cause of intrauterine fetal demise and gastrointestinal symptoms. Patients typically have gastroenteritis dominated by nausea and vomiting rather than diarrhea. So in staph aureus, we see nausea and vomiting are more, okay. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk about some teratogenic medications. So phenytoin is one of the teratogenic medications which can cause neural tube defect, orofacial cleft, microcephaly, nail and digital hyperplasia. So whenever someone is using phenytoin for any sort of epilepsy or something, then we can have the child can have the neural tube defect, oropharyngeal clefts, and uh, microcephaly, nail, and digital hyperplasia. If someone is taking lithium for bipolar disorder, then Epstein anomaly can occur, and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus and hypothyroidism can also be there. Valproate causes neural tube defects, okay, and which is an anti-epileptic drug. Isotretinoin can cause microcephaly, hypothalamic. I mean to say small ears and hydrocephalus and also thymic hypoplasia so in isotretinoin use microcephaly thymic hypoplasia small ears and hydrocephalus is there methotrexate use limb and craniofacial abnormalities can be there neural tube defects and abortion can also be there because of the methotrexate someone is using ac inhibitors which can lead to renal degenesis and oligohydroamnios and ac inhibitors is used for chronic hypertension if someone is on a pregnant woman is, is uh, having chronic hypertension then that time renal agenesis and oligohydroamnios can occur warfarin nasal hyperplasias and stipple epiphysis so one more time warfarin nasal hyperplasia stipple epiphysis ac inhibitors renal dysgenesis and oligohydroamnios methotrexate limb and craniofacial abnormalities neural tube defect and abortion isotretinoin microcephaly thymic hyperplasias small ears and hydrocephalus valproate neural tube defect lithium abstinence anomaly nephrogenic diabetes insipidus and hypothyroidism Phenytoin, neural tube defect, orofacial cleft, and microcephaly, nail and digital hypoplasias. So yeah. So basically, I am explaining you this because there was a question in which the patient's uh, prenatal ultrasonography was showing the bilateral small underdeveloped fetal kidneys consistent with the fetal renal hypoplasias and these find fetal findings in addition to the history of complications are likely due to maternal use of the AC inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers which are teratogenic. During pregnancy, angiotensin 2 is required for both fetal renal development and also for maintenance of the glomerular filtrations. Okay? For GFR, both the AC inhibitors which prevents the convergence of angiotensin 1 to 2 and ARBs which blocks the angiotensin 2 to angiotensin receptor type 1, okay, decreases the angiotensin activity, okay, resulting in defect in the fetal renal development that is renal hyperplasia and agenesis. Hypoplastic kidney may are unable to produce the urine, therefore, fetal ultrasonography reveals a small fetal bladder and also minimal urine. And the lack of the urine productions is exacerbated by decreased fetal glomerular filtration rate causing the oligohydroamnios. That is, amniotic fluid index is less than equal to 5 cm because amniotic fluid is uh, required for fetal lung development and protections against the limb compressions. Fetus with oligohydroamnios are at increased risk of pulmonary hypoplasia, facial and limb abnormalities known as Porter sequence. Okay, because these are the risks. Uh, the women of the childbearing age should not be started on AC inhibitors or ARB if there are other options available. Those taking AC inhibitors and ARB should stop these medications prior to the pregnancy only. Okay. 
ट्रायजोमीड्रोम However, fetuses typically have uh, anomalies affecting the multiple organs such as cardiac defect and ovulations uh, rather than isolated renal hypoplasias. Posterior urethral walls and membranes obstructing the urethra can cause the oligohydramnios due to decreased fetal urine output. Okay, so yeah, posterior urethral wall can also be there. Okay, let's just see a picture of posterior urethral wall. You just Google it out. It's really nice, and you will be able to get that easily. Okay. What I'm talking about. However, the back up of the urine typically causes distended fetal bladder and bilateral hydronephros. So, in posterior wall, you will see a bladder size is increased, not reduced. Okay, and uncontrolled pre-gestational diabetes mellitus typically causes the cardiac defect, that is septal defect and tracheology of palate, and also nervous system defect, that is neural tube defect and sacral agenesis. Okay, that correlates with severity of the maternal hyperglycemia. Isolated renal hypoplasia is not common findings of uncontrolled diabetes mellitus. Okay, vesico-urethral reflex is a retrograde urine flow from the bladder to the ureter, and uh, typically enlarged fetal kidney are there in that because of hydronephrosis. So yeah, this is all about the teratogenicity in a child, in a in retro fetus. Now let's talk about how would you diagnose the gestational diabetes mellitus. two step approach for screening and diagnosis of gestational diabetes mellitus if a patient is coming at 24 to 28 weeks of gestation the first step is administer oral 50 g glucose load and then check the serum glucose at 1 hour later okay if the glucose is less than 140 mg per deciliter that is gestational diabetes mellitus is unlikely and no further testing is required but if glucose was more than equal to 140 mg per deciliter then step 2 is done which is administer 100 g oral glucose load and check the fasting serum glucose and each hour after for 3 hours okay afterward for 3 hours so if fasting blood glucose is more than equal to 95 okay or uh, yeah and one hour glucose more than equal to 180 two hour glucose more than equal to 155 and three hour glucose more than equal to 140 okay This is Carpenter and Costen's criteria, and now let's talk about National Diabetes Data Group criteria. So, fasting more than equal to one zero five milligram per deciliter, one hour is one ninety, what two hour is one sixty five, and three hour is one forty five. So, basically, there are two criteria: CC criteria and NDDG criteria. Fasting in CC criteria was more than equal to ninety five, and NDDG criteria more than equal to one zero five. In one hour, one eighty and one ninety. Uh, 2R 155 and 165, and 3R 145 and one uh, sorry 140 and 145. So this is the group. And if all these things are there, and if you see that more than equal to two abnormal values are there, that is for that is diagnostic for gestational diabetes mellitus. So basically, there was a questions out of which I am telling you this all these criteria. So during which the third trimester of a pregnancy was there and the fetus has increased demand for the glucose and other nutritions due to accelerated growth and increase in the metabolic need the physiologic adaptations of the pregnancy due to pancreatic beta cell hyperplasia and increased insulin secretions and 
increase peripheral insulin resistance so basically the metabolic demand of glucose is increasing in the uh, third trimester because pancreatic beta cell hyperplasia is there due to which insulin is increased which is reducing the glucose and also in yeah that is only leading to increased insulin secretion and also there is peripheral insulin resistance the majority of the hormones needs fetal for fetal growth and nutrition in the third trimester only are regulated by the placenta so human placental lactogen uh placental somatomammotrophin has increased production in the third trimester okay resulting in beta pancreatic cells hyperplasia and increased insulin resistance so yeah hpl that hpl hormone causes beta pancreatic cell hyperplasia and also increase resistance now let's talk about the metabolic effect of hpl okay see human placental lactogen is increased which increases the insulin resistance and this insulin resistance uh, uh this increases also increases the insulin secretions this increase insulin secretions inhibit the insulin resistance because of insulin resistance there is increased lipolysis increased proteolysis and increased blood glucose okay and ultimately this blood glucose increase and proteolysis increase causes increased glycogen synthesis and protein synthesis and lipolysis causes is a maternal energy source which mother is using this her lipids for the energy source okay the gestational diabetes mellitus occurs when peripheral insulin resistance exceed the pancreatic insulin secretions okay so the pancreatic insulin secretion uh, why uh, the insulin secretion by the pancreas when overcome by the peripheral insulin resistance then the gestational diabetes mellitus occurs which is pathologic in maternal hyperglycemia screening of gestational diabetes occurs with one hour of the glucose challenge test at 24 to 48 weeks of gestations and uh, correspond to the increase in the hpl productions diagnosis is confirmed by 3 hours glucose so screening for one hour glucose and diagnosis at 3 hour glucose tolerance test okay and that was glucose challenge test gct and this is glucose tolerance test gtt the treatment of the gestational diabetes mellitus is important because glycemic control uh, improves the pregnancy and neonatal outcomes maternal hyperglycemia is associated with increased rate of the fetal macrosomia c section delivery and neonatal hypoglycemia okay so yeah matter macrofetal macrosomia c section delivery and neonatal hypoglycemia therefore gestational diabetes mellitus results after the placenta is delivered due to cessation of the hpl productions and subsequently rapid decrease in the peripheral insulin resistance okay other options were there that was autoimmune destruction of the pancreatic cells which is basically seen in type 1 di- diabetes mellitus and destruction of the pancreatic beta cells decrease in result in decrease insulin secretions and uh, does not change the insulin resistance next is excessive intake of carbohydrate that is juice and white rice if somebody is taking juice and white rice all that thing okay inadequate exercise also risk factors for development of type 2 diabetes mellitus diagnosis prior to or early in the pregnancy the patient with low carbohydrate diet and amount of aerobic exercises and low pre uh, pregnancy bmi everything uh, unlikely to have the type 2 diabetes mellitus okay and if he is a, he so if she is having a pregnancy and diabetes in further terms then it can be gestational only okay although the transient maternal hyperglycemia after meals is normal during the pregnancy this patient's persistent postprandial glucose of more than 200 are consistent with gdm okay gestational diabetes mellitus yeah so this is it for this lecture thank you so much for listening if you have any doubts you can dm me on my instagram id usmle creativity proceed success so i will mention this id in the description box and thank you so much again for supporting thank you i hope you all are in pink of health and please stay safe and take care of your health bye guys